0: To ship, ship of, of course. course. It's time for the ship show where we talk about release engineering, DevOps, and everything between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Silver Build Inge on Twitter and at com. And who's with me tonight for our first double digit episode, episode 10?
1: This is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter and uh, BuildScientist.com.
0: This is Seth at CheesePlus on Twitter.
2: This is Sasha Bates, Sasha underscore D on Twitter and com.
0: How's everyone doing tonight? I'm great. Good. Happy it's it's to be sleepy. done with the uh, <laughs> sleepy. <laughs>
2: So tonight we're going to be
0: talking a bit about build infrastructure architecture and specifically your CI tool. Uh, Should you be using it as the hammer to hit every nail in your release engineering and deployment process, or are there better tools for those jobs? So we're going to be talking about that. Before we get to news and views tonight, I wanted to mention Seth and I were uh, guests on the Food Fight show uh, a couple episodes ago talking actually about release engineering. So if you want to hear us talk about release engineering, um, Seth makes me look stupid, because he's so smart when this stuff comes up, and also I explain why I don't hate (laughs) GitHub. Check that out, and also they did a Google Hangout, so uh, check both of those out, there'll be links in the show notes. Uh, and now it's time for News & Views. So the first topic we have in News & Views tonight is um, election news related. We just had uh, the big presidential election here in the States. And there were a number of stories coming out about the role that DevOps and web applications played in the campaign. So uh, there was a story about um, the Romney campaign accidentally launching their transition site, even though he lost. Uh, there, was a, there was another story about uh, Project Orca which was the Romney campaign's get-out-the-vote tool, and there were some problems with it. And uh, finally, then there was a story from Minnesota Public Radio about some of the big data processing that they were doing. You know, what do you guys think about this, uh, the the kind of influence that it looks like these tools played in the election?
2: Well, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, uh, especially several of the... Uh the Articles that came out the day after and stuff, plus the the article that the NPR aired uh, it was interesting. It was actually uh, like a special report, so it was pretty long. I heard it in the car while I was driving home the other night, and uh, they talked a lot about how they were able to match up volunteers with the people that they would be speaking with, so that they would have similar backgrounds and i and uh, points of reference and things like that. They did a lot of studying too of reactions of people in other states. I don't know. I don't know if people know this or not, but Minnesota was actually the first, as far as I know, state to vote down the voter amendment. They also actually attribute the fact that all of our legislatures went back to the Democrats uh, this year, too, on the fact that liberal voters were out in such force to vote down the amendments. So that was interesting. And one of the ways that they did that was do a lot of studying of, of how things in other states went down and learn things like, well, it's cool if you want to talk about rights, but people don't respond to that. What they really respond to is personal stories and, and uh, non-confrontational Actions and so they kind of kept the kept it nice, kept the took the high road on, on all of their public commercials and things, and and worked really hard actually to involve people of faith. So they had an enormous involvement from all peoples of faith, different different uh, different denominations right, of so, things. That was really interesting.
0: But so the the co- the kind of theme of all of the, these stories though is that you see a lot of. Uh, the technology you know kind of web services and and app custom applications to take large amounts of data and process them you know we don't have a link to this story but everybody's been talking about Nate Silver who was the statistician uh, five, is it 538 blog who did all the big number crunching of all the polling data and he didn't get a single poll or a single prediction wrong so i think from the perspective of does it play did it play a role does it make can you know does it make campaigns more effective to have this data available to them. Uh, I think you're starting to see that, you know, at least from from what I've seen, yeah, if you actually crunch that data, you have an advantage. Uh, and and if you invest in people who know what they're doing with respect to to the DevOps work and, you know, campaigns are very operationally focused. So it sounds like you're going to have a strategic advantage uh, in the next cycle if you can figure some of this stuff out. And it was pretty clear that just from the stories, politics aside, that the Romney campaign didn't seem to, to focus on that as much. And so there were stories of like, you know, I, I, it's funny, we t- I tagged the Romney campaign launching their transition site as when ops and devs don't talk. Um, it's like, oops, uh, you know, somebody didn't tell, you know, uh, the the ops people not to launch the site. Apparently, they were watching other election returns or something like that.
1: So I, right. I'm I'm more interested in kind of the breakdown of how this happened. I mean, are they not using a content management system that can, you know, deploy this stuff? There's content management systems out there that'll, you know, you can set up a, a time and date to roll this stuff out, or Well, you know what I think
2: happened, this is interesting too in the the terms of what we're talking about here, which is the Romney campaign outsourced all of their app development, doesn't even matter to who, uh, although it's funny, you should read the article and find out, and it looks like the Obama campaign actually did a whole bunch of open source and in-house development, so I'm guessing that that was a lot of what was going on.
0: You know, I actually have a friend who did a bunch of work for, a bunch of tech work, a bunch of DevOps related work, he worked on an internal project for the Obama campaign that was actually doing a little bit of data crunching and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff was volunteers doing that work. The other thing is, is I don't know, did, uh, Sasha, did the article say where they had it hosted? And the only reason I ask is because I know the Obama campaign did a lot of their stuff on S3. I mean, they used kind of the standard stuff that, you know, a lot of places use. And I don't know if, if the Romney campaign used S3 or used a, a different hosting provider. Yeah, I don't
2: know. I think I think Obama did really have full-on... AWS and things like that. Yeah. I I just didn't want to be you know a typical IT jerk and say who was doing the outsourcing of their work for them. So I don't really know where it was hosted, hmm. but the article does say pretty explicitly where they outsourced things to. I thought hmm. it was pretty funny. So I think that's probably the the big issues for them.
3: Look at like the headers and or not the headers, but like the the libraries and stuff. Just like look at their HTML standards and stuff. Yeah. I knew someone who compared the sites on that, and you can tell that. There's a lot more forward thinking applied to like the actual, just wow. like like the responsive design of the of the Obama site, uh, the campaign site was what It's just an interesting like note there. Is if you actually like compared those like those statistics, they were also like more up to date, more responsive, worked on more devices, things like that. Uh, so it, like it came in at a lot of different levels,
0: which is kind of neat. Well, so I should I should go check this slash dot. Somebody did a a survey and it got on Slash I think in the 2000 election or it might have been the 2004 presidential election. All they did is they went to the websites of all the this was back of the primaries. They went to the websites of all the people that were running for president and they just got um, what what web server they were using. Were they using Apache? Were they using IAS? Were they using um, netscape enterprise one of them was using that were they using like what operating systems was they using freebsd or linux and it was it was interesting to see which candidates were using what and some of it was like was it an inference about the candidate or was it one of those things where they just outsourced it and who knew? they they were so far removed from that sort of decision that yeah, it was just like because one of them like i said i think was using netscape enterprise in 2000 and, and that was kind of like uh most people had moved to Apache at that point, so it was kind of like, uh, well, let's see if I can dig that out. That was, I remember reading that and finding it kind of humorous. Yeah, so uh, uh, next up, QCon SF is going on right now. We had a link to uh, Chuck Rossi's talk about release engineering at Facebook. The video isn't up, but somebody took a a bunch of notes. We'll link to that post. Uh, I thought I'd point the post out because a couple things stood out to me. First, that it was release engineering at Facebook, not DevOps at Facebook. And in fact, in the first paragraph, it says Chakarasi doesn't like or avoids the DevOps word. And so I I thought I'd bring this up because everybody always kind of points to Facebook as we want that exactly. There's not a lot of new material in this talk, but I I wanted to ask what you guys thought. Did you have a chance to, to go through this?
1: Yeah, I, I went through it, and you know, I for one, I'm kind of tired of hearing, you know, well, you should do it like X Y Z company does it. You know, I think uh, you know, it just depends on your company's requirements and what your needs are. And yeah, you know, they're they're doing some cool stuff, but it's Facebook, so
3: I'll play the counterpoint here. I think it's even though even though the people interpret, oh, you know, we should do it like this, you know, X Y Z company. Um, at the same time, it's it's kind of notable that these companies are actually putting it all out there and telling you how they do it, which I don't want to... Because that's something that has not happened in the past nearly as much. And so it's better, even though like... We we all get tired of the oh let's just do it like Etsy. or let's do it's it's not as important as like how they do it just the fact that they are open about how they do it because it's just a reference point and should only ideally should only be treated as such so there's I still think there's a lot of value in even though we're like oh we're tired of hearing how Netflix or whoever does their stuff I think there's a lot of value there around that even if even if it doesn't necessarily mean you should edit.
2: also yeah. um, I actually have a coworker several coworkers who are probably tired of hearing me say, Etsy does this and Etsy does that. I I mean, some of them probably are sick of it. Some of them aren't because they're uh, secret fanboys um, and some of them not so secret. But... um. (laughs) One of the things that I'm finding people resistant to is, is uh, we want to do this thing and we need to write a tool. And I'm like, well, but Etsy has written tools and so and so has written tools, and, and there are tools out on the internet. And they'll be like, well, but they don't do exactly what we want to do. And I'm like, yeah, but they kind of do. And the whole point of open source is to take something that's already out there and make it better instead of starting over from scratch. So yep, you know, and we are definitely uh, having a a dichotomy of agreement. Uh, as far as things like that go. So I I hear you.
0: Well, so, you know, it's interesting. I don't mean to single Facebook out because you're right. Um, It's funny that you mentioned Etsy because they're another one. Um, You see a little bit GitHub does a lot of, you know, very open postmortems. AWS, same sort of thing. The one thing I, and I, I, Sasha, I think you're spot on with your point about having the data of what other people doing and what tools, you know, Netflix with Chaos Monkey and all the tools that they have. And it's like, no, we don't need to rewrite this. And we've done a couple shows about that. You know, it's like, when do you write your own and when do you leverage other people's stuff? What I think I find interesting about this is I've seen three or four or five articles in the past six months about what Facebook does. And quite frankly, I don't see anything new. It's the same story over and over again. And that's fine, but it makes it sound almost like it's from something from their PR department because it's very, the same details over and over again. And I know that Facebook is, you know, any company is always evolving, but I keep seeing the same details. And it makes me wonder how much of it is sort of like, these are the talking points that you need to hit because we were talking about this with the AWS. No, I'm sorry, with the GitHub outage where they did a big post on what went wrong. And then at the end of it, they just said, so we're growing, and we'll figure this out, and we'll let you know. And I, I actually haven't seen a post from GitHub saying what the result of the postmortem was, you know, what kind of changes they're going to enact. So it makes me wonder, when you hear a lot of these talks and the content's the same, how much of it is like, hit the talking points, but let's not talk about these things, or... I, I don't know. It just seems a little polished for me. That's yeah, I, all think, I-, I think
3: Paul, Paul's got a conspiracy theory, and it's, it, this revolves from his deep, deep hatred of both Facebook and GitHub.
2: I think he's feeling a little oppressed. <laughs> <laughs> so now, but interestingly, we're, I'm going to stray off onto an article we haven't, uh, we don't have uh, in our list, but we can put it out there later. And I haven't talked about this, but Seth, you especially should know about this. And uh, Ernest Mueller and uh, working over at Bizarre Voice, he actually published an article like maybe a month ago now that talked about uh, the current state that they're in and and uh, the chaos that they're working through to try and get to a place that is pretty. So if you're looking for kind of a counterpoint, Paul, you might try that.
0: Yeah, uh, shoot should be the link. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and I, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm not explaining my point, but I guess all I'm saying is that whenever I hear the same message over and over again, it makes me think it's more constructed than reality because reality is really messy. But I
2: think what we really need is more but, companies willing to talk or speak up and, and let their people speak up about what's going on, and that's what's really going on is that there are so few people that have permission and um, self-awareness enough to be able to chronicle what they're doing and, and speak about it.
0: Yeah, and and one other thing to that point, Sasha, is that you have a lot of companies that actually don't want to talk about the huge screw-ups they did in public,
2: right. and, and I
0: understand why. I'm like, like, i like, I get that, but that's another hurdle to that whole process. Yeah, so that, what, yeah.
1: what, I, what I was going to add was this whole BitTorrent thing. I mean, uh, what I want to know more about is, okay, so they've got this massive binary that they're pushing out, and I remember uh either watching um, uh, an interview with Chuck Rossi and his team or reading some article that said that it's like a, a gig and a half binary that they push out, and they were talking about, um, you know, potentially uh, um, splitting that binary up, and, and you know, I kind of want to know more about that. So I, I, I'm i with Paul. I mean, stop regurgitating the same info. It's great. You know, we know you use BitTorrent. We know, you know, you have a... Uh, what is that thing called? Hip-hop for, for PHP, The converting PHP code into into, into C++, compile C++ code, and, and all those other stuff. But kind of talk a little bit more about that or dig into some of the, the design decisions that went into using or developing some of these tools and techniques. Well, uh, So, I, I,
2: again, I, if there are a couple of presentations that Etsy have done that have really talked about some of the decisions they've made and some of the things that they've backtracked from and stuff. So they actually do talk about bad decisions and bad places they've been. Maybe Facebook doesn't, but... Uh. Well,
0: you know what? So, actually, maybe this is... Maybe we just need to see if... I, I actually worked with Chuck a long time ago, back in the day. Maybe I should just uh, give him a call and see if he'll come on the show. Maybe that's... That, that would, would solve awesome. our problem. That, yeah,
1: that would be awesome.
0: So, maybe I'm complaining about me. Maybe I just have to get off my butt and do it. Um, next up, something that scared all of us. Coffee could be extinct by 2080. Uh, there was... I know. There was a, a link about climate change and where... I What was it? I think, like... or 70% of coffee uh, is grown. Um, I'm looking at it right now. Arabica beans. Yeah, 99.7% of the, I'm kind of mispronounced it, Arabica beans, the growing area. 99.7% of the growing area is being threatened uh, by climate change before the end of this century. So that's where 2080 comes from. Though they were saying that in some areas as soon as 2020, they won't be able to grow coffee there anymore. Um, Yeah. That's <laughs> a moment
3: start- <laughs> of silence. Yeah, yeah. W- one, one thing. I thing- <laughs> think about this.
2: Ice yeah, nerds everywhere will die.
0: One thing I noticed, or the article referenced, and I did not know this, is coffee is the second most traded commodity after oil. Really? Which I- wow. Yes. Which I, I, I think know Says something. So yes, let's. Uh, we need our best scientists working on this right now.
2: <laughs> Seriously, forget the bees. Save the yeah. coffee.
0: Well, this is why we need to stop,
3: it. We, we stop. We need more. We need more funding for a climate change study because, really,
2: it's that just made will, it real. Yeah, exactly. but the, it's this a chicken, is, and, this it's is a chicken it. and egg
0: problem, though. What do you think keeps the the uh, researchers awake? If they don't have coffee, yep. they can't.
3: We're, we're screwed here. <laughs> I know
0: we're screwed. Big
3: time. <laughs> I'm so scared.
0: All right, well, we'll be back in a moment. We're going to be talking about uh, CI architecture, uh, continuous integration tools, what you should be using them for and maybe what you shouldn't be using them for. Uh, We'll be back in a moment on the ship show. The ship show. So our topic tonight, configuration management architecture, could Jenkins or your favorite continuous integration engine do everything, you know, build, config, deploy, install, and reporting, or should you use other tools for that? I think we've all been in environments where we've seen it both ways. And so Yusuf, this was a, a question you sort of posed. It's something you've been thinking about, and uh, we started talking about it earlier. So uh, why don't you start us off on this discussion?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think you know, when you when you take a look at tools like uh, like Jenkins or any other kind of continuous integration tool, there you know all the components that you just mentioned so uh, build, orchestration, um, reporting, deploy, install, etc. A lot of that stuff can't be done by one tool. But is it a good idea? I think it depends on your requirements. I think it depends on the size of your organization. I'm more. Uh, sort of, I, I sort of follow the, the, I guess, the school of thought that you you really shouldn't get your you know favorite CI engine to do everything. I think to have a, a proper, I guess, you know, continuous delivery kind of uh, configuration management uh, uh, infrastructure, you should get different tools to do different things. And you know, of course, there's a um, integration cost associated with that. But you know, which isn't to say that your CI engine can't do all those types of things. I mean, I know Jenkins can pretty much get it to do anything. But there are some, I guess, expenses associated with that, so...
0: So before we talk about those expenses, you... So we've, we've thrown around, you said continuous delivery, CI, continuous integration, CM, configuration management, uh, so oh. like a bunch of C acronyms, but you also said orchestration. Yeah. And I know Sasha had used that term before, and I, I'm guessing I know what you mean, like it but I've never heard that term used so what do you, what are you guys what orchestration like you're not we're not talking about conducting an orchestra right well we are yeah,
2: yeah it's 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 pretty much I mean if you want the the silly definition it's it's uh, stuff that makes that other stuff go and babysits it while it get, happens and then reports back to you on on how how it was so really. what's
0: uh what's what's an example of an orchestration tool that isn't isn't a CI tool or isn't you uh, know
2: Rundeck is one. Okay. Um uh, there are some big enterprise ones. Control-M is one. Uh, another, The other really big one that I know is is Maestro, and those are generally managed by large you know, teams of op- operations, like enterprise operations folks, who deal with uh, jobs that go from mainframes to servers and, and all over the company, and and what will happen is there are agents that live on all these servers, and the, the, the central, the mothership, if you will, uh, keeps an eye on stuff and, and makes sure that when something happens down on server A, uh, something down on mainframe B gets triggered and then make sure that that finishes up the way it should or reports when it doesn't so that then the operations guys can go in and see what just happened so
0: it's kind of like command and control is that a uh, tool or is
2: that just a concept oh no no a concept yeah but, okay. uh, yeah it's
1: kind of sort of like that but uh, the thing that I wanted to add is that there's a workflow component to it so you know when you're if you think of it as a uh, of an orchestra you know you've got the different a you know, musical orchestra you've got the different you know, instruments and I'm not a music major, but you know all the, all yeah. the different.
0: Well, let me ask you this yeah. then because, because we covered rundeck and I and I'm not I, we don't need to spend too much time on this, but I just want to make sure that, that I understand it and, and listeners who may not have have uh, heard that term before understand it. So rundeck, as I remember, was just a way to sort of control a bunch of servers. I think also we talked about Ansible. Would that also be an orchestration tool? Would you consider I
2: that? do not know. I thought that that um, was a primitive. Orchestration to or a primitive configuration management.
3: See, so, so I, it, it's it's so it depends on how you, you can use some of the. that also should be kind of made clear. So I think that's the
2: why we're talking about this, right? Have,
3: <laughs> yeah, have, have multiple, per- you know, they can do mo- more than just that. So like we can twist
2: your baby Jenkins into knots, but that doesn't mean that it's going to enjoy it.
3: That's yeah, true. but so can't
0: you do that with... So so back to the, yeah, the topic. It, so it sounds to me like actually we uh, uh, kind of attacked this from the premise of should you use your CI tool for that? But it sounds like you could use Chef as command control. You could run random commands on your... your People you do.
2: Know,
0: right? Yeah. And, and you could use Rundeck to do continuous integration by SS. I, I actually, there was an environment that I knew of where their idea of having... Jenkins, they didn't. They didn't use. They didn't want Jenkins or any of that. But their idea of doing like master slave was SSH into the machine and run the build over SSH. And I was, kept, I was like, no, 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 don't do that. And they were like, but that's what we want. And I was like, okay, have fun. <laughs> um, but so the point is, you can actually use these other like orchestration tools in horrendously bad ways too. Is that? also... Yeah, yeah, I don't know the- really
2: that you would call it horrendously bad necessarily either. I think it's a it's a choice. Yeah, <laughs> it's a you choice can, of consequences, can, but. Beautiful.
0: You have
3: you uh, have a
2: choice. Yeah, I mean, and we use all, for a lot of stuff. Like we're, our developers, we have a, a large Jenkins installation, and our developers use it to build, run their tests, and report back on things, and also to pull stuff down from Artifactory and other places, and also move files out to, like, dev and, and test servers where they're going to deploy things, and they'll actually kick off the deploy from the Jenkins server with an SSH, but I don't consider it necessarily orchestration because Jenkins can't babysit anything beyond that point. Related.
0: So would you you would not use it that way if, if you're setting it up? From-
2: and honestly, I would try to use Chef or something else that could babysit the process on the other end.
1: Yeah, I, I totally. Agree with so wait, it, what I do think. you what do you mean by
0: babysit?
2: So how do you know your deployment worked?
0: Well, so if you're using Jenkins to do it, and I'm not saying you should, but right? but in that case, people are doing yeah, it. yeah. If you were doing it that way, it would seem to me that you would. Have a Jenkins job that the quote-unquote build step or whatever is to do the deployment, and then the the unit test for that particular job or whatever would be to test is is what you deployed actually deployed. How would you do that? Uh, well, you probably end up writing something. On your so own. You,
2: yeah, so you'd have to you'd have to throw something together to do that, and that's what they did. They wrote a a log parser basically that runs in, oh, and kicks okay. off as part of the deployment, and then goes in and, and parses the startup log for errors. So this is dev, right? Nobody cares. It's not that big of a deal, and they were in a hurry, so that's what they did, and that's cool. But it doesn't doesn't scale very well.
1: Mm-hmm. I wouldn't
2: do it in production or anything like that. And. A lot of people are doing something similar with Chef on the other end, which I also don't condone one way or another, really. I don't know enough about how they're doing it. But you can set Chef attributes to notice, to set, uh, like, release numbers. Mm -hmm. And then when Chef notices that the release number attribute is changed, it can kick off a deploy based on whatever. If you wanted to do that again, I don't know that I'd do that in production, but I think some people do.
3: Yeah, I've I've been in environments where we've actually used our CI as the full, you know, the the build, deploy, reporting, all of that. Electric Commander has been used for that, and it has it has great kind of like take you know take this action when this thing happens. it's got a lot of it's got a lot of it actually offers a lot of advantages in that in this particular space. And so it, it kind of takes care of some of those orchestration things. Like it knows what to do when something goes wrong, and it's got a kind of a native uh, idea of those things. You don't have to actually write code to do that. So, so that that can be, I think, it can it can
1: work. So here's here's kind of the problem with coupling yourself to, uh, you know, I don't want to use, or I, I don't I don't want to pick on Jenkins, but you know, coupling yourself to you know your favorite CI engine. It's basically that. Uh, you know, specifically to you know with Jenkins you're heavily relying on you know like Sasha said some shell script or some you know process that somebody wrote or some kind of a plug-in and if that thing changes then you know and your entire orchestration architecture is based on that then you're 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 stuck basically so, you're
2: writing a bit of tooling to make up for the fact that your tool isn't doing what you want it to do entirely right and that's what I'm what, my big issue actually with Jenkins is not so much that it can't babysit the other end and, and that's a it's an issue, but uh, my big deal with it is that it gets really complex. As you get more complex with your flow, a lot of CI stuff can keep up, but somebody coming in behind you and trying to read job flow is going to cry, yeah. right? Yeah, and, that, and, and need a whiskey.
1: You, that's when you start to get really hacky, you know, Jenkins jobs, Jenkins jobs uh, definitions. Um, you know, there's a lot of plugins that you know you can insert or I guess inject um, parameters into other jobs, but I think once you start going down that path, it's you probably should start looking at a separate uh, orchestration tool. Feels yeah.
2: like that. Our jobs are getting really complex, and and we have several plugins that deal with flow, but Jenkins interface really can't keep up with it, and so it becomes really kind of ugly and, and difficult to read and things yep. like that. So.
0: So you, the other thing I've seen when when you see, and, and this again we keep using Jenkins, but it could be any CI tool, That's and it, could it actually it could be well it, it could be an orchestration tool, right? If you put everything into your orchestration tool, even though it's not really designed for that, right? right? And
2: you wrote scripts. If you wrote scripts and ran run deck, it would be similar, right? So, so
0: uh, what I was going to say is, I, I one of the things that I see a lot is is that if you do that then you are basically, whether or not you know it, you're making Jenkins or Rundeck or Chef or whatever kind of a core part of your infrastructure. And a lot of places don't have the mental model for handling it that way. So I'll give you an example there was a friend that was working uh, with a, a client of theirs who uh, they were talking, they were working, that, that client had a setup that everything was in Jenkins. I mean, everything. Build, deploy, test, all of it. Um, and the, the and actually, the, the list, Yusuf said, even some of the reporting was in there. And he went in and was asking questions and stuff, and he found out, like, it was backed up when... Someone randomly decided, oh, I haven't backed up the server in a while. I should go do that. But they would just do that in the middle of the day and take it down. And then QA <laughs> would just be borked while he, that was happening. And so it, the as a service to support not only the engineering organization, because now QA is involved, the DevOps people are the so the entire company, Jenkins was not treated as this needs to be bullet, not bulletproof, <laughs> but as bulletproof. It's it's like part of your, in some sense, it's, it's the pump behind cool your... Yeah, it's the pump behind your deployment pipeline now. It's, so in that, in that sense, it's like your heart. But they weren't treating it like that. They were like, well, you know, if it goes down, it's fine. It's just Jenkins, right? Well, it's not actually everything that you do is related to this tool when you're not thinking about it like that. Is it rebuildable? Um,
2: what? Because that's the next question, right? Can they rebuild it too if it goes down?
0: Well, well, that was the other thing. And and actually, one of the big problems, too, was the more... And this is actually the, one of the reasons that I did quick release, the tool that I sometimes talk about. Um, and it, again, it's, it's, it's not orchestration or any of that. But if you put all of your logic and shell scripts and everything into Jenkins, so you have in the little Jenkins box to do a build, it's these 18 commands. You can't version control any of that. And that was another problem where the steps necessary to do a build changed. And so the person updated them, and then they decided to go back to build an old branch, and they couldn't remember what those three commands they just deleted were.
1: So, so Paul, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because the the actual help description and the, um, so when you go to do a a build action in Jenkins, it actually says you can type a you know shell script in here, but we highly recommend that you check it out from version control and run it. Um, right. So it, it's kind of funny you mentioned that.
0: Right. Well, and and the thing about that is, again, I I think it's really super easy to make that mistake if you're using that, using one tool as a huge sledgehammer for everything. Because you're like, ah, I know it told me to check it out, but I'm in a hurry and I'm doing it right. You know what I mean? So I, I, I can't say that, that we
2: actually it. we actually do deal with all of those things. So all of our stuff, we try to make sure that only only uh, logic is in Jenkins, only flow logic is in Jenkins, and everything else is if nothing else in a shell script and Subversion. And then we also back up all of our Jenkins jobs to S3 outside of our OpenStack infrastructure, and uh, we have everything chefed so that we can drop and rebuild, which we've had to do often lately as our OpenStack infrastructure. Uh, has not been that great. So let me
0: let me ask you this. Uh, since you brought this this issue up, uh, and I'll I'll actually uh, start with my own answer. Uh, but I wanted to ask you guys, what's the weirdest thing you've seen in Jenkins? And and the weirdest thing that I've seen in Jenkins is jobs that are set to run, and their only purpose is to monitor the Jenkins server and other Jenkins slaves. So there are things like, is this machine running out of disk space? Is this machine still running? And so it's like basically Nagios, but in Jenkins.
3: That is, I mean, I've I've seen I've seen a CI tool used to spawn uh, remote Windows remote desktop sessions and start listeners in them. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. think about that. Um, it, where did
0: where did you say that bourbon was? Seth? Uh, <laughs> In my hand, um, can I have some?
3: <laughs> yeah. So, but it's so I've seen some. I've seen it do some really strange, bizarre stuff with with CI tools where it's you're so off the like the beaten path at this point. Like you, it's it's a hack. It's just it's just hacks on. You're hack. never coming home. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Give up now. Abandon. Abandon. I
2: don't think we have anything like that. I mean, we have some stuff that is like we've. I've helped and assisted in writing some stuff that is. Um, complex and it's unfortunate the way we did it. I mean, we started doing one of the things that has me concerned and my teammates as well is that we started writing what we consider to be a wrapper job as an orchestration job so that we can have a process chunk for people to use right so that you can actually come in and fill out a few things and then have this wrapper job actually monitor several different things that happen and then pop you up an entire environment that lets you test your stuff right which it includes popping up openstack vms possibly creating an rds database to go with that and uh, deploying pulling code down from subversion and building it and testing it and then deploying it out to one of your new vms that it just popped up and this is what's really gotten us t- thinking about well maybe Jenkins isn't the perfect thing for everything in the whole world, right? Maybe we need to start thinking about something that can handle flow better without lots of drop downs and, and trying to figure out what this box actually does for things and stuff like that. Yusuf, so. have you seen
0: craziness?
1: i um, trying to think. A couple things come, come come to mind. I've seen and I've heard of environments where a, uh, a Jenkins plugin was written, wasn't open source though, to... Do some kind of an arcane uh, build on, uh, on on a Microsoft Windows platform. So the the plugin was written in Java, and then it, it does some other stuff. And um, this is all for building you know some sort of uh, visual. Uh, I'm not I'm not talking about .NET, but pre .NET type set of projects. The other thing that that, that I've seen, um, and this is something that I've done. You can actually build what I call um, self-service tools on in in Jenkins. So, using um, parameterized builds, you can. Uh, I think Sasha was just talking about that. Fill stuff out on a form and then hit submit or build, and then you know it'll kick off a process. So you can do things like uh, you know uh, self-service releases, tagging, branching, that type of stuff. But again, there's a there's a there's a cost associated with that because. You're kind of overloading Jenkins into doing something it probably was not designed to do. The
2: so, complexity is, is the real curse yeah, there.
1: Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's interesting that you say that, uh, that you bring up that example, the parameterized builds and the self service, because it seems to me that that is actually the allure. The thing we hear over and over again, and actually to our news and views a bit about Facebook, I mean, we've all heard that I, I want the button Facebook has for doing deploys, right? and Or Etsy or whatever it is. I want the button. Right. And so self service, I want a web page that I can go fill out and click a button and I get a thing and I don't have to talk to you. That idea is incredibly popular. Uh, That's a very
1: worrisome idea, though. I mean, there's
0: well, so so that's actually a different issue. And that's actually probably, we could talk a a whole show about that. But what I was going to say is that it's not surprising to me then that people see, you know, Jenkins gives them a way to provide something that everybody wants. And so it's not surprising to me that everybody then shoehorns stuff into it in ways that may not be sort of supportable or whatever. So I wanted to ask, uh, Yusuf, you mentioned the costs, you know, there are costs to doing this. And and I I wanted to, you know, ask everyone, I mean, what are some of of the costs you see when, you know, uh, Sasha, you actually said one complexity. What what are some of the complex issues that that if you do it this way, whether it's, you know, focusing everything in your orchestration tool or everything in Jenkins or everything in Chef, your CM tool, like, what are some of those costs that you're going to run into? So, so uh, Jenkins
2: is not very self documenting, and actually, neither is Chef for that matter. You have to be able to read things that are not English necessarily.
0: So, the cost there is then you have to make sure you document it elsewhere, and you're probably not going to do that if you're going at that speed of development. Well,
2: and, well, you could be, but we, and we have, and we have hundreds of words on the process flow that we've developed, and I, Personally, I think that wiki documentation is outdated before you even hit send, honestly. I I don't like maintaining stuff in a wiki, and uh, I think what you end up with is just a lot of flow that people don't really understand very well, and you end up with maybe one or two people around that that do. I mean, users, right? Not even us people who wrote it, but end users. One or two people who really understand it and can use it, but that largely, if it's too complex, people don't use it, and then your work is for nothing. So, And what I've seen other companies do is, like, I, I think that they don't use a tool. I know Etsy, when they wrote their early deployment scripts, they were scripts. They were all scripts kept together in in version control, and and then they wrote themselves a a little front end that they used.
0: The documentation is the cost there. Uh, Yusuf.
1: Yeah, so I think there are some things that we can pull out of software architecture, like being tightly coupled to um, a system or an interface and, and that, that kind of comes to mind with a tool like Jenkins. So you know, if you're using a particular set of plugins, you're you know, in some ways, depending on what you're doing, tightly coupling yourself to those plugins. And I'll give you an example. There's a uh, couple of plugins that deal with deploying things uh, via SSH. So you know, they're, they're, they're handy, they're nice, but when it comes to actually adding on additional hosts, and then, you know, doing things like modifying those hosts across different job configurations, you start to get into some, you know, sticky situations. It's not it's not very easy to do that. So that's when I think if you're just starting out doing your uh, kind of deployment uh, uh, automation using, you know, Jenkins or whatever other tool to do everything is okay, but there should be some idea that, you know, depending on the, the, the growth of your deployment architecture, you, you, you definitely should keep in mind that complexity, but also you know being tightly coupled to a tool, depending on again, depending on the plugins that you use. The other the other thing that I wanted to mention about the plugins is that you're kind of at the mercy of whoever is developing it. A lot of plugins on Jenkins right now, kind of outdated, some of them don't work correctly. Yeah, you can go in and hack the code, but that's back to roll your own, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: So let me ask you this. You were you were talking about the coupling and I and I think uh, that's actually an interesting point to bring up because I'm generally of the school that you should be able to do a release without all of that inf- all of that automation infrastructure and and I I see a lot of people actually when I bring that point up they look at me and it's like well we have Jenkins why would we why would we ever want that. And the answer is, I don't know about you guys, and this is actually a question, you know, I, I have you been in this situation where, uh, and I'm I'm actually imagining, I bet Seth has, where there's a bug, and you need to fix it, and Jenkins is down for maintenance, or Jenkins crashed, or there's some thing, and it's like, this is horribly bad, but the CEO is going to fire me. If I don't get this out because it's, it's costing us gazillion dollars a minute or whatever it is, and so I know I'm making a conscious decision to hack up this deploy and push it, and am I even able to do that? You should always without- have it out. You yeah,
3: have an out like is it- but your
2: your infrastructure think- is either a critical path or it's not, right? So I mean, yeah. if, if Jenkins can be down, then it should be it should be clustered or it should be built somewhere that you can easily pop another one up in two seconds.
0: Well, well somebody, yeah, but so, actually, here's a question, though. I, I, I'm going to challenge that notion a little bit, Sasha. So let's say you have a standard situation where it's like, uh, you know, I got, I'm going to build an installer. I, got, I have an app, and I build the installer, and then I take it, and I do some packaging on it, and then I copy it to S3, and that's what I download, right? I don't need – I may have Jenkins, and that may be the normal flow, but if Jenkins is down, I should be able to log on to a, a build slave, run the build script myself – take the installer and copy it to S3 on my own in a pinch. I'm not, I'm not saying, right. And so I, I think sometimes if you put everything into your tool or even have the mental model of we should use use it use Jenkins for deploys and we should use Chef for everything or whatever it is, you know, I, I, tell me if I'm wrong, but I thought Chef was about configuration management. And if I can't actually push bits to S3 because Chef is down, and, and again, not picking our chef or Jenkins, but if that's the way we've architected our stuff, that seems to be broken.
2: Well, and I think that I can. I, I'm, I'm tempted to answer the way I did already, although I actually believe the same way, right? I mean, you should. Anybody should know how the deploy works, and they should be able to do it by hand if they have to, because it can happen, right? Yeah. Something, something yeah. can make it happen. On the other hand, I can toe the party line and say you should be able to pop those things back up fast, and you oh, know yeah, what? Yeah. We can. And most places can too. I mean, if you have that stuff, generally, and it's it's not too hard to pop up a new Jenkins master. And uh, well, you make know, sure know, things can still go.
0: Seth said something really good. Always have an out, and if you're out, yeah. is we can pop something up quickly. That's great. If you're that's, out, is that is a mitigation strategy, right? Exactly. Like, if we tried to pop it up and that failed, but yeah, I want to be able to still push bits. You know.
2: Your your people should always know how things work. Anyway, I mean, if they don't, we have other problems. People, there should be always somebody who knows how to get stuff from point A to point B and running out in the world.
3: Well, I mean, something that something that I've done is like specifically for that is a lot of the systems uh, for especially on two other projects that were game ones that I was on were making a system. So, like, we would write things in a little encapsulated like script so that. Even if everything was down, even if like our your, our CI was down, you could run those scripts in order with like a simple like command and build the whole you know build everything that's required. Um, right. And it's right. it doing it, and it does it in the exact same way the CI system does. It's just how the parameters get passed. So that's that's something that you build it so that you can be completely standalone because I've we've been in those situations where you need those bits like. You know, oh, you know, electric commander's down. That doesn't cut it. Like, so it I was. Have that excuse. Failure. Um, if you're not, then you. I, I mean, you yeah, got, you
2: should always have a backup plan for sure.
3: Yeah, and that's and that's kind of and it's, I I mean, I like both. I like to be able to tear it down, like bring it back up really quickly. That's really important. But also, you know, modularizing things so that you you know how the the flow is easy enough to put back together uh, without the complex orchestration or CI tool.
1: So I, I, would, I would actually argue that you know, everything that, that both um, Sasha and uh, Seth have said should be factored into your um, sort of design or architectural design of uh, whatever orchestration deployment system you come up with. And you can think of it this way. Um, if I have you know a 10-story building, there's an elevator in it, and the elevator goes down, what are you going to do? You're going to go down the stairs. So I guess the analogy that I'm trying to come up with is there should always be, you know, like uh, an alternate method of, of of you know getting to the same point that you're trying to do with uh, whatever continuous delivery system that that you um, you set up.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that analogy. The analogy I was thinking of, uh, San Franciscans will laugh at me, but I was thinking of Muni. Their metro light rail system has an automatic train control system in the tunnels, and it breaks down from time to time. And then you see the operators operating the train manually, and they are required to do it a lot slower than the the, the automated system will do because they have to be more careful. I'm not sure, actually. This would be a good question to go research. BART is automated as well, which is another transit system. But if their automated uh, train control system goes down and all their trains are automated, um, I don't know that they can operate. I don't know that they have a manual mode on BART. And so that's a, what you were saying. It's like, is there mm-hmm. a way for me to manually do this? Or if that goes down, am I just screwed? And, uh, I, you know, it, it's it's a different kind of design uh, philosophy. The one question I wanted to ask uh, th- that I, you know, Sasha, you brought this up. You brought up a great example. And uh, so I wanted to ask, you know, kind of in a perfect world, where, where are the lines and what tools would you use for what? So, Sasha, you mentioned that anything that's kind of flow-related might fit well into Jenkins. Did I...
2: Uh, well, that, so no, I, right. I would, if it were up to me, I would probably in my. You have to think about the size of your organization too, right? Okay. So we have hundreds of developers. We have an open stack infrastructure that's serving up to stuff to hundreds of developers, and they're popping up stuff all the time with Jenkins. I think that I would actually try to scale back use of Jenkins for orchestration for complex job use, and I think that I would try to keep it to build and testing kind of things. And then I would look for a tool to bridge the gap between building and orchestrating things. Because I, I think that Jenkins is really tough to, well, and Jenkins is all that I use, right? So there are other tools out there that are probably similar. I haven't ever used Travis, but I assume that it's it's probably very similar. So my issue with, with the CI tools is that they don't obviate their flows very well so you can't really see what's going on if you don't already know you can't read the jobs you can't sometimes you can see upstream and downstream dependencies but you can't see if you have something else managing two or three parallel jobs it's not obvious to things that, that you have more dependencies and, and there's no good way to I actually did an internet search for something that would maybe map job flow and, and it's there's really nothing out there although there is a plugin that offers like a DSL for, for describing it instead of having to use drop downs and, and things like that but I think that I would look for something to bridge that because Chef is awesome for config management uh, it's not so great for deployment if you're a bigger shop I think and I, I think Jenkins is fantastic for building and testing and small jobs but I think it, it doesn't do complexity well I would look for something I think to to sit in the middle there.
0: Uh, Yusuf what do you think?
1: I totally agree with what um, Sasha just said I, I think keep or, or leave Jenkins to do what it's what it was originally designed to do it's a continuous integration server. Let it do it, You know, handle the builds, run all the, the tools and the associated with with building and um, if, you, if you're actually compiling anything. And then just to kind of add on to what Sasha said, the only thing that I would leave onto uh, uh, onto Jenkins is you know either a a hook into another system or allow that other system to call back into Jenkins. And that's why I really like the Rundeck plugin. Um, so you can have Rundeck do your actual orchestration, and then once your orchestration is done, or if there's like a failure state, you can call back into Jenkins. So I think that kind of strategy is a it's a it's a good approach. As far as specific tools, I think it's just going to depend on your requirements. Um, like I said, I mentioned Rundeck. I've been looking at MCollective um, for folks who don't want to use SSH as a transport um, mechanism. So yeah, just depends on what what your requirements are,
0: Seth.
3: So for me, it's it doesn't really matter what what the tools are. It is that it is that it can communicate. So I've been in places where I've you know if you do have a if you do have a tool, uh, sometimes I think it is is arguable to use it to its fullest extent. If if you're going you know if you've really invested in it, um, take time to select the tool if you have the chance, um, and then you know as long as for me it's it's about having uh, the the value of those tools is being able to operate on the metadata of all the jobs um so for so i've used it for trending and things so i could you know trend the builds as part of you know the actual system so i think those like that's all i really want out of it is the ability to have details on how long everything is taking and then organize and have that kind of orchestration as well I don't really care how it gets done. I, I like use. I like the tools to be simple, but I think you can have one that does a lot of your tasks. But always, but for me, it's it's more about having a failover than you know, or failure cases covered, rather than like picking a cool
0: tool. So I, I think Sasha made a really interesting point about a really relevant point about it's. It, it depends on your environment. And are you doing a web service and a website? Are you doing? a hybrid where you've got a client and you have to talk to a web service. Are you doing, you know, software for cash registers and you push that out on USB sticks, you know? Those are all going to be different. And they're going to have different requirements. I, I think um, the kind of theme that I'm seeing from the, the conversation we had was a lot of times people get into trouble when they have a tool or even a set of tools, but there's no one looking at the high-level architecture and what that entire pipeline and flow is supposed to be Immaterial of the tool, and so you get this. Well, we, you know, we have to support this new thing, and we have Jenkins, so let's use Jenkins, even though that might not be the right tool for the job. Uh, or we have Rundeck; let's just throw it into Rundeck because we have that. And I think that's where you start to get, you know, that's you, you do that two or three times, and maybe it's okay. And you do that ten times, and then it's a mess. So I guess what I would say is that for me, uh, it, I agree with you, Seth. It's not so much about the tool, but I like to see. Yeah, you know, I place emphasis especially when I'm working with clients on what is your build process and what is your release process. And I like to make very assertable, uh, you know, make stages of that pipeline and then you can assert the inputs and the outputs of those stages, which means if you use Jenkins for build, great. You can and you can know when Jenkins has produced what you expected, and then if you have Jenkins do unit tests, but you have some other totally different tool that QA wants and has bought into, and and that's what they want to test those bits, and it's different from Jenkins. You can provide that as an input, and as long as that tool produces output that you can use, you can redirect it to Jenkins, like uh, Yusuf was saying, or you can you know re- redirect it to logging, log stash reporting if that's the way that you want to, to aggregate that data because you have it on a dashboard or something, whatever. But I think the problem is not so much the tool or even how you string them together. It's that you don't have clear boundaries of which tool is supposed to do what and then it becomes hard to assert that the tool has done its job correctly for all of the other things that may be relying on it. Um, and then you that's where you get this tangled web of, cobweb of unhappiness that right. is your is your release process now so well this is certainly a topic we'd love to hear uh, more from listeners on where do you think the lines are what tools do you use for specific things what jenkins horror stories do you have from they were using jenkins to start my car outside before i get up in the morning in the cold weather or whatever weirdness you have we'd love to hear those stories so uh, go ahead and shoot us those at uh, ship show podcast on twitter Uh, And this is an ongoing uh, discussion, so I'm sure at some point we'll talk about it again. But uh, we'll be back in a moment on The Ship Show. Welcome back to the ship show. So for a few weeks now, we've been saying we are going to do DevOps Dear Abby, the, our, our own uh, question and answer sort of segment on the show. We did it last time and had a lot of interesting discussions and actually prompted a lot of other interesting discussions, both in real life for me and on Twitter. Uh, so that was uh, fun. So we've finally done that again. We I, I tweeted it early enough. And we have a couple of questions tonight. So our first question is from uh, Julian Dunn, who's, who asks, "Okay, I have a DevOps dear Abby. Who do you think should be responsible for the build and release toolchain?" So Seth.
3: So uh, I think that I think uh, you know who should be responsible depends very much on the size of your organization, where you're at. There are places where you're going to have a dedicated release engineering team because of the complexity. I like the idea that Dev owns it until it gets to, until the project gets too big. Um, I definitely like having Dev own it over over you know Ops owning it. But that's that's been that's been my experience. But it, again, it de- really depends on how big your your organization is. Some at some places, it's just one engineer owns it. I like to I like to have shared ownership of it though uh, because everyone needs to know that it's important. So that's ideal in any situation.
1: Yusuf, what do you think? So I'm going to echo what uh, Seth just said, but I wanted to add that uh, I think you know again, depending on your requirements and the size of your uh, organization, that there probably should be some sort of a service delivery team that maybe you know comprises of uh, you know kind of DevOpsy type folks and build engineer, tools engineer, uh, maybe some folks from QA. Yeah. Okay, Sasha,
2: I'm not actually sure that I have. Um, I'm qualified to have an opinion on that. It's never been my area. Most of my area has been infrastructure, so building stuff before it exists, and uh, assisting development as they need it, but I've never actually been part of the build and release process. But uh, from what I've seen, what I think is ideal is that you have a couple of people on each dev team who understand the process in detail from end to end. Otherwise, regardless of who owns it in the end, there's going to be confusion and chaos because nobody is going to know your stuff as well as you know your stuff. Uh, Whether or not you have, like, a central team that does a lot of that for you or that you have one or two people around who do it for uh, your team, I think that, again, depends on your size and stuff. Is is the question, do you think, should dev or ops own the build and release process? Because I don't think ops ever owns anything about dev. I, I can tell you I never saw a build process until I started working on a development tools team. As an infrastructure architect and as operations, you don't see build stuff. You see artifacts. You see end game stuff, as long as, you know, people are playing, playing by the rules. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't ever think that ops should own anything to do with build. I think ops should make sure your crap gets to the wherever it needs to go and uh, stays running when it gets out there, and that should really be their focus. And if, if you don't know how to tell them how to do that, or if you can't give them something that, that will kind of magic it into place, then you have culture problems, right?
0: Well, so I think there's actually two questions here, because who I think should be responsible for the the build tool chain I think by definition that has to be the developers because I, I actually have a client that wants to move to Visual Studio 2012 because they want the C++ 11 features I'm not qualified nor is it my place to tell them you can't have that compiler sorry um. Right. Where, though, and so, you know, if they want to use a new, if they want to use .NET, a new technology, if they want to use a certain library, OpenSSL or whatever, I I think we're, that's a a, a totally support function. Now, you know, who should be responsible for the release tool chain? I actually think uh, some of that is necessitated by the fact of what you're doing. So, for instance, if you're burning ISOs, then there are certain (laughs) sets of tools you're going to use to that to deliver the ISO, and that's a release process, right? And so that's something where I think... That's actually can be more, uh, the uh, the you know, if it's DevOps team that does that uh, or the release engineering team that does that, they're going to have more involvement and they may, they, they should feel comfortable asserting more control over that part of the process because in some sense, as long as it builds, they're responsible for getting it to build. But the tools they use, they need, you know, that's kind of driven more by engineering. The one thing I was going to say is I do think that, on the build side, once the tool is selected, so Visual Studio 2012, or we're going to use OpenSSL or whatever it is, that that's where engineering, engineering is fully empowered to make that decision. That's their call. But how that library gets integrated into the build environment, that needs to be owned, I think, by the DevOps crossover or your release engineers. The reason for that is you see this, in small and big organizations alike, is that a lot of developers think? Well, I can just check the DLL in, or I can check the jar in. I can check this stuff into source control or whatever, and it's fine. And most developers don't have the higher viewpoint or the not the the um, different perspective, the higher level kind of ten thousand feet perspective of all of the different things that that doing that can impact. So I've been, you know, I've been in environments where there are four versions of the same jar that are slightly different in different ways, and two of those jars had been unjarred and. Sp- specific class files shoved in and checked back in, right? That kind of stuff. Because the developer is like, well, I need, I need a bug fix. So I would unjar it and recompile it, and then well, what's the problem with that? And I can understand that perspective, but I think that's where, as a support team that's serving lots of different customers, uh, serving the entire engineering team, and serving the organization to make sure that licensing things aren't being broken, that GPL... Code's not going in. The the legalist said that's the problem for us. That's where we're the gatekeepers on that. And that becomes something where it's kind of like, tell us what tools you need and we'll we'll get them working for you. But we need to be part of that part of the conversation.
2: I think everybody needs to own that process. I just want to disagree with one thing that you said there. And that is that um, your developers who don't know any better, I think you need more than junior developers on your teams doing work.
0: I've seen senior developers do that.
2: Well, that's unfortunate that they were labeled that, right?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's. You a need team.
2: people who are assault, who are aware of the environment around them and not just their tiny macrocosm of code. I think that's okay for ninety percent of your development team, but you need actual architects who understand systems, not just their system. They need to understand the impact of what they're doing on things around them, or they're not a senior. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion, though, right? Yeah,
0: I think that's a show. Uh, our other. Uh, DevOps Dear Abby is from uh, Ali Rail. Hi, Allie. She's a friend of mine. Uh, we work together. And her question is, uh, regarding Jez Humbles, there is no such thing as a DevOps team, which we discussed on the show last week. Is there such a thing as a DevOps consultant? Allie asks. So, uh, Sasha. Uh, is
2: there such a thing as a DevOps consultant? Maybe. Um, it depends on what you would maybe want out of one. I've had a few people talk to me about doing stuff like that, and it's made me really nervous to be, have somebody bill me as going into a place as a DevOps consultant when all I really want to do is kind of make nice stuff and automate all the things and be culturally sensitive, right? I don't know that I really am comfortable actively coaching other places as part, as part of my job. Uh, so I, there, I think there are folks who can do that if you can listen. It's like an agile coach, right? They have those. We have one where I work. We have a full-time agile coach whose job is to is to helps to help us uh, not only do agile things but actually be agile at the same time. So I think you can have them. I think probably they're pretty rare, and uh, people who want to actually listen to what they have to say, which is you need to fix your culture first, uh, is even rarer.
1: Youssef. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I DevOps consultant, the thing that kind of comes to mind is uh, culture consultant. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a good... I, I like the idea conceptually, but I I, I I think you can have somebody to come in, you know, like Sasha said, like agile coaches and that type of thing. But again, you know, my, my take on, you know, the whole DevOps as a culture type thing is um, I think it needs to... Um, to come from you know top down and bottom up with both ways. So can one person change an organization to become more DevOpsy? I, I I don't think so. But maybe a DevOps or culture consultant can show people that are willing to move in that direction how to uh, how to adopt some of those uh, ideals. Yeah.
3: So I I don't actually uh, I'm not sure I really have a, a a a strong opinion on this. I think that. Basically, it's a culture consultant. Like, it's you know, they 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 can exist, and I don't think it's I don't think it would be. I mean, I've certainly seen people hired to do this, but I do feel I do also kind of feel like weird about that, like or even doing so. Like, I would feel strange and be like, I could tell you these things, but I feel, I don't know. I feel like I'm just stating the obvious. But sometimes people, you know, sometimes people want that. Sometimes they want somebody to come in and be like, oh, that this is all broken. You need to do this, this, that, and the other way. So. You know, if somebody gets value out of it, I don't see any problem in you know, in in that actually being a thing.
2: Yeah, but so, I would have trouble billing myself as one for sure.
0: So, yeah. so I I know there is such a thing as a DevOps consultant because I've seen people in their LinkedIn. That's what they call themselves, uh, so they exist now. To the point of the question, because because our discussion on is there such thing as a DevOps team? It seems to me a lot of the consultants are just using. They're doing ops work, and they call themselves a DevOps consultant because that's the word that their recruiters or the people hiring them, that's the buzzword that they hear. So that's, it's, it's a marketing thing. I agree, both uh, Yusuf and Sasha, that, that actually a real DevOps consultant would be much more like an agile consultant and less about the code and more about cultural development and the little commentary about being a therapist, more that kind of role. Which is funny because there are a lot of DevOps "quote unquote" DevOps consultants that I've seen that do are doing the ops work and they are pounding the drum about DevOps and DevOps, you know, the the DevOps standard talking points. And I actually think they're doing their organization a disservice because they're not looking in. They're not looking at how DevOps should be integrated into the environment. You know, you don't if you have somebody who's doing a a bad in a bad pattern of behavior you don't just steamroll them and say stop doing it because that doesn't work that's not human nature and I see a lot of the DevOps consultants not a lot some DevOps consultants that call themselves that and and treat it that way they're just like have you read the book and if you read the DevOps book then everything would be fine and every every point of the book applies to your environment and I, I Don't think that's just a checklist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and there needs to be it needs to be more of a conversation with the the people because culture is about people, and it needs to be more of a iterative development of the organization into a new way of doing things. Not just I'm here to automate all the things and beat the drum of the DevOps manifesto. And, And like I said, I don't have any I don't have any issues with that. I just think the people that enter into that consulting role that way are not as effective as they could be and they're not as productive for their organizations. The, the organization's not deriving as much value as they could otherwise. So
2: I would have real doubts about being able to go in and, and effect change in an organization as a, as a single person. Because I, yeah, I think the- you're right. I think a lot of that kind of stuff happens from from within, from, uh, the, from it's a grassroots kind of thing. And I've actually had somebody approach me about going to a large company as a DevOps consultant. And I don't know whether they meant Agile Ops or if they meant as a culture consultant. You know, Agile Ops, I'm pretty cool with. C- culture consultant, I don't feel at all comfortable building myself as an expert in that. I'm just I'm just enthusiastic about it, right? I don't know that I actually have any real... And I would be nervous about it because I don't know that it is possible to affect real change from the outside when you're not a part of the culture itself.
0: So, so I, I agree with, with the term you you did say, though, DevOps, like Agile Coach, <laughs> DevOps Coach. Is a- yeah, yeah better w- it would be what what they're referring to
2: I think those yeah. the effective ones of those are, are rare and uh, there are not too many of them around
0: so uh, we will do another uh, DevOps dear Abby segment at, at some point in the future probably early in the new year since it's starting to get to the holiday season again and uh, but we still have some shows coming up for the the rest of the year that uh, you'll be able to listen to on your way to Grandma's house in the station wagon. You can put us on and tune in to us and tune out Aunt Fran talking about Fruitcake. You can also follow us on uh, Twitter at Ship Show Podcast and always shoot us messages there. You can email us crew at com and that will go to all of us. So from San Francisco this is Paul Reed signing off.
2: Minneapolis this is Sasha Bates signing off.
1: From Austin this is Seth signing off. From San Diego this is Yusuf signing off. Have a great couple of weeks.